Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Um, our speaker is Chuck Slaughter, and Chuck earned both a bachelor's and master's degree in public and private management from Yale. After, after receiving his master's degree, he spent years working on corporate strategy for Fortune 100 companies as a consultant. In 1991, he founded Travelsmith Outfitters, a direct marketer of travel clothing and gear. Chuck built Travelsmith into the number one brand in travel wear with over two million customers and $100 million in sales. He sold it several years ago and created the Charles Slaughter and Molly West Fund. Since then, in affiliation with Golden Gate Capital, he's participated in the acquisition of 10 major apparel brands, including Spiegel, Newport News, and Express and as a board member and strategic advisor for Spiegel Brands. Chuck's latest venture is a social venture, Living Goods. It applies what amounts to the Avon model to to the challenge of improving access to low-cost, high-impact health products in Africa on a fully sustainable basis. Chuck was the recipient of Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award. He resides in Sausalito, California, with his wife, Molly, and three sons, Cooper, Riley, and Jackson. So please join us in welcoming Chuck Slaughter. Thank you, Anne. And uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I also want to thank Lucy in absentia, um, who graciously arranged this visit. Um, Thanks to the Dallas World Affairs Council, And thank you to all of you for taking time to hear this uh, important topic this evening. Uh, So Texas is a little bit my second home. Um, Years ago, I remember seeing that ad they ran that had the tagline, Texas, it's a whole other country. Well, I'm originally from another little country called Connecticut. And now I live in a strange land called California. But I'm lucky because a few years back, I married a Texas girl my lovely, darling wife, Molly West, who is sitting right here. Honey, just wave a little bit. Thank you. Molly grew up in Dallas. Um, I enjoyed here so much, and the people are so friendly. I think I've decided to apply for dual citizenship in Texas. I'm still hoping to get my Texas passport, but if not, maybe you will grant me a visa to come back and visit. On to our topic, and let me get straight to the serious bit. On average, 25,000 people die a day for want of simple, proven health interventions that cost less than a cup of coffee. This tragedy continues every day, despite decades of well-intended effort and hundreds of billions of dollars in aid. While this sounds dark and hopeless, my hope tonight is to give you reason to be hopeful, a reason to imagine that we can begin to solve the dire problems of poverty and disease on the scale these social ills exist in the world. 
first a caveat. While I've scaled my own business, Travelsmith, which grew at a, about 150% compound rate in its first six years, Living Goods, uh, which is launched just a year ago, is still relatively small. So it would be right and reasonable for uh, uh, you to take anything I say tonight on, in that sector with a grain of salt. So scale and sustainability um, may be the two most overused, misused, abused terms in the social sector. Everyone talks about going to scale, sustainable solutions. And if you attend a conference, which many of you have on philanthropy or poverty, AIDS, I guarantee you there's going to be a session with the phrase scaling up in the title. And, and yes, I'm guilty of speaking on some of those panels. Here's the deal, uh, in my opinion. 95% of that is bunk. Uh, and I'll prove it to you with one question, which we put here. How many social sector organizations can you think of, apart from a few well-endowed universities, hospitals, can you think that have more than a billion dollars in activity a year? I challenge you to think of more than five. In the private sector, a billion dollars amounts to a small cap. We live in a world littered with millions of Lilliputian NGOs trying to address gargantuan problems, while the public sector operates on a vastly greater scale than the NGO sector. Global government resources fall far short of the task. And even where governments do apply liberal resources, they all too often miss the mark. Foreign aid in the last 50 years has been substantial, but it hasn't produced substantial results. In the social sector, we have to redefine what we mean by scale and sustainability. In short, we have to think a lot bigger. And, and more importantly, we have to rethink how we achieve scale. So tonight, I want to share with you one model that is demonstrating the potential to bring real scale to the challenge of defeating the twin tragedies of poverty and disease. And now one more caveat. Um, by the way, expect a, a few more escape clauses. I do come from a family of lawyers, and so I know how to cover my tail. You've heard the expression, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, my hammer is my experience in building businesses. Um, that bias acknowledged. My strong belief is the best way to achieve truly global, truly sustainable scale in fighting poverty and disease is using the tools of business. That does not mean simply creating more businesses. It means applying the strategies, methods, efficiencies, and importantly, incentives of successful business models to the problems in the social sector. Let me talk briefly about one, uh, one area that some of you are familiar, are familiar with, and that's microfinance. How many here have know a little bit about microfinance, just to show hands something? All right, good. Arguably, microfinance is one of the few models for addressing poverty that has, achieved, that, that, that has gone global. Uh, I recently saw this uh, tagline. See if this thing will keep going here. Oops. See, one second. For a uh, microfinance program called Trickle Up. For, three cent, for 300 years, capitalists have been working miracles for the rich, and now microfinance is demonstrating that it can work miracles for the poor. In the 1970s, the pioneers of microfinance, Grameen Bank and BRAC, who we'll talk about, adapted a business model, lending money, to the problem of poverty, proving it was possible to lend very small amounts to the very poor with no collateral to help them improve their livelihoods and that they would pay the money back. And while this was a great triumph, alone it was not enough, for it was not yet sustainable. Over the next 15 or 20 years, though, these pioneering organizations built microfinance into a fully self-funding system, generating enough internal contribution to pay all its own costs. And that 
is when microfinance went global. When development groups and donors saw that this model could pay for itself, it quickly proliferated. And that's why today there are over 4,000 microfinance institutions serving over 100 million borrowers um, who in turn um, impact over almost a half a billion uh, lives. This path to global scale, applying a self-funding business model to a social goal, is the template and touchstone for living goods. So what exactly is living goods? Living goods is the Avon of village healthcare. Um, pardon me, being in Texas, I should probably say the Mary Kay of healthcare, <laughs> who I met with this afternoon, I should add. Living Goods creates networks of micro health entrepreneurs who deliver health education and make a modest income selling essential health products at prices affordable to the poor. Our vision Living Goods seeks nothing less than a disruptive reinvention of primary health care delivery in a way that brings high quality products to poor consumers at significantly lower cost, dramatically lowering needless deaths, um, and creating an efficient platform for distributing other vital products to the poor, for the poor while paying for itself 100%. The Living Goods model synthesizes the latest and best practices from the worlds of microfinance, franchising, and public health to create a fully sustainable system for defeating the diseases of poverty. We aim to reduce illness and death by up to 50% um, by significantly improving access to proven basic health interventions. In the many places, these are scarce or non-existent. Living Goods has a dual purpose, though. It is also a powerful engine of economic development, um, improving livelihoods by providing women, uh, thousands of women, a reliable source of income as community health promoters, by keeping wage earners healthy and productive and extending their productive years, and by helping people avert costly medical treatments. Most importantly, we aim to replicate this model on a broad scale via partners in dozens of countries. And so today, I want to focus on a few ideas that are the core behind how Living Goods achieves, achieves scale and sustainability. Um, and the first and most important of these is focus, a keystone to our strategy. We focus on a short list of diseases that account for over two-thirds of mortality and can be prevented or treated at very low cost. You see some of them listed here malaria, diarrheal disease, worms, and respiratory infections. And note, there's, there's one thing significantly missing from this list. Can you imagine what it is? AIDS. So AIDS, as you, can, you might imagine, is not a disease that comfortably fits in a model that seeks to be self-sustaining. Not that it's not important and not that it needs, uh, does not need to be addressed. We do address it, I should add, through prevention, um, but not through treatment. Living Goods community health promoters also provide basic family planning and reproductive health services with the twin aims of lowering fertility and reducing mortality for pregnant women and newborns. They market a diverse basket of goods anchored by essential items, emphasizing prevention, like bed nets, condoms, and water treatment, and complemented with home and personal care income, uh, pair of products to enhance their income and therefore their sustainability. Where do we go? Living Goods targets primarily rural and peri-urban communities with inadequate access to essential health products, underserved by the existing public and private health structures, and with relatively high disease burdens. If it were, the color isn't coming out well on this uh, chart here, but it's that sweet spot in the middle of those three areas. And we estimate that this, as it says, can be 20 to 50, in some places 60% of the population. 
the percentage of poor people, people in poor places who can afford the basic interventions we're talking about is actually much greater than people realize. Inadequate access can mean physical distance from the nearest source of health products, and um, depending on where you are, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of the population can be more than five to 10 kilometers from a health facility. But often, the problem, the biggest problem is not proximity, um, but a landscape littered with private outlets operated by untrained, scarcely monitored sellers. Uh, many private drug sellers, and I've done this myself, I've gone into many of these places, won't even ask you a question if you ask for an antibiotic. I've, I've also walked into private outlets that will have a 12-year-old behind the counter dispensing antiretrovirals. As a result, both overprescription and misdiagnoses occur frequently. Um, malaria is, 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 a, is a big source of misdiagnosis. In Uganda, there's a recent study that showed that 50% of the people diagnosed with malaria had ordinary fever. And with the cost of malaria drugs going up, the cost of that misdiagnosis is enormous. The weak regulatory enforcement of these sellers make them easy prey for wholesalers of counterfeit products and who are frighteningly common. And because they lack collective buying power, they're often buying it at higher prices and passing the costs onto their poor clients. While public health care centers are plentiful in some of these countries, the funds to staff them and the put drugs on the shelf are not. So even where public dispensaries may be near, stockouts are frequent. And a recent study in Uganda showed that um, in 50 to 60% of the cases, dispensaries were out of stock on key items in any given month. Public health systems is also widespread. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, the human resource problem is enormous. The estimates put the, in the, for sub-Saharan Africa a lack of almost a million healthcare workers um, to serve the need. So let me tell you a little bit about how, about how living goods actually works. Um, and I'll, I'll do this by example. Um, this woman, you're seeing her name is Robina, um, and she's a member of a microfinance group um, run by a partner of ours in Uganda called BRAC. She lives in a peri-urban area of Kampala called Natete, and she has four children of her own and takes care of a few children of friends and relatives orphaned by AIDS. She, was, she volunteered, but then she was selected by her lending group to take this role of being a community health promoter. She received three weeks of training on essential health care from Living Goods and BRAC. And when she finished her training, she got this free health promoter kit with a T-shirt, apron, cap, ID card, very important, a locking storage chest, the bag you see her holding, uh, some basic health products like a thermometer, a scale, and a simple reference binder. Um, she also received access to our source of supply, which in the case of every health promoter is within four kilometers of where they live, so they can walk to a source of supply, and which we guarantee will be in stock on, the, on these key items. Um, and uh, due to our purchasing power and the fact that we are able to skip over two or three levels in the distribution system, she can buy these items at a much lower price than other private drug sellers and therefore um, make a decent profit while charging lower than market rates for her products. Um, she gets also a low interest rate, below market interest rate loan to pay for her initial inventory. And when she starts, she makes an outreach plan, much like an Avon agent. Um, she lists her relationships in the community, friends, family, local organizations, schools, and churches, and she uses that as a template to make an outreach plan, um, which she has to stick to every day of the week. 
And now she's spending a few hours a day going door to door, school to school, church to church. She teaches people the simple things they can do to stay healthy, like hand washing, sleeping under a bed net, and having their children in a hospital. She explains modern family planning, she answers questions, and importantly, she refers cases who need secondary care to a public health center. She knows what her limits are. And when needed, of course, she sells basic health commodities like bed nets and water treatment. Our goal for her is to make about $200 a month in sales, $2,400 a year, and earn about $500 a year in profit, which is roughly two times the national average in Uganda. And I can, having just returned from Uganda, I'm happy to report to you that in our first few months of sales there, um, the average CHP was exceeding this long-term target of $200 a month just in their first two months. We weren't expecting to hit that for two years. These are some of the steps in her training and rollout. So a second key piece of the, the strategy for sustainability is, the, is around the product mix. And my, uh, I'm coming from the retail sector. And so a big piece of my DNA is merchandising. And I know that getting the product mix and pricing right is central to the success of this model. Um, But our challenge is much greater than for a typical retailer because we have to optimize the mix to meet both the goals of economic sustainability and health impact. We can't just sell a lot of shampoo. Um, Impact without the sustainability doesn't get you very far. And sustainability without impact doesn't achieve very much. So what you see here are the four distinct categories of the product mix. And we saw in very early in planning this that offering just the basic health commodities was probably not going to be enough to give her a good income and to throw off enough extra contribution to pay for the overheads. So to enhance her earnings and her sustainability, we added these other two categories on the bottom. Basic packaged consumer goods, including cosmetics in some cases, and on the bottom right, what we're calling money-saving money-making products, which I'll talk about later. The marginal cost, uh, think of this as economy of breath. As long as she's already uh, visiting someone to sell water treatment and bed nets, why not also offer laundry soap and toothpaste? The marginal cost of carrying the added products is fairly low, but the gain in economics is high. And I can give you firsthand proof that this is working because um, of the 28 or 30 items that she has right now, um, 50% are coming from soap. 50% of her sales are coming from soap, uh, hand soap and laundry soap. So our ability to sell all those bed nets and, and vitamins would not nearly be as robust if we didn't have those other things in her basket to, to uh, sustain her income. The breadth of product, though, provides another very important benefit, pricing flexibility. And by that, I mean really the ability to cross-subsidize. Um, to maximize uptake on key items like bed nets, we can charge little or no margin um, Uh, and make it up on lip gloss or laundry soap. We're even planning to use the platform to distribute fully subsidized items like Coartem, which is the current um, uh, primary indication for malaria. Um, And contrary to hurting sustainability, we believe that the subsidized items can act like lost leaders that bring customers who buy other things. Gift with purchase, if you will. Um, Back to microfinance for one moment. Reminds me of a proverb you know, for I heard a microfinance conference, give a man to fish and he can eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he can spend all day in his boat drinking beer and avoiding his chores. <laughs> uh, uh, 
In essence, living goods represents the next stage of microfinance development, microfinance 2.0, if you will. Think of it this way. 80% of the businesses of those 100 million borrowers probably fall into five or ten categories, uh, small traders, small farmers, livestock, tailoring, charcoal, hair care, not unimportant. If any of you have traveled in East Africa, women care about their hair there as much as we do here. Um, uh, so let's do the math. There are millions of microfinance borrowers in each of those categories, all operating independently. Think of the staggering inefficiency of that. What if you could organize these like businesses into groups of 500, 1,000, or 10,000? What if they could dramatically lower their product costs through combined buying power? If they could share best practices? If they could hire experts to improve their skills and productivity? And what if they could use their buying power to lower their cost of borrowing? Well, that's exactly what direct selling businesses do, and that's what Living Goods does. So uh, uh, speaking of direct selling, I want to talk a little about Avon for a moment. The lessons Living Goods um, learned from Avon are more than skin deep, if you'll pardon me. Avon was founded in California in the 1880s. The conditions that provided the fertile soil for that germination 150 years ago are, the, are a direct source of inspiration for living goods today. So what was it like then? It was dominantly rural, dominantly agricultural. Uh, these rural places had poor access to quality products. Uh, there were who lived in villages with tight social connections and women who needed a source of cash income but had to fit that opportunity around their other responsibilities of farm and family. While it's not a perfect foil, these conditions bear more than a passing resemblance to what we see in rural Africa today. The Avon of 2008 is also inspiring. It boasts 5 million agents selling over $8 billion a year products in 100 diverse countries, mostly outside the U.S., by the way. And, and the cultures and economies that Avon works in, the, the range is startling from Brazil to the Ukraine, Thailand, Turkey, and, and, and on. Um, and so you might ask, how do I know so much about Avon? In doing my research for Living Goods Business Plan, I decided to enroll to become an Avon lady myself. <laughs> and yes, they don't get too many men. When I asked my district sales manager whether she had had many other male uh, agents, she sweetly said to me, no, not many, but we'd like to have more. Um, and joking, joking aside, I actually did learn a number of things that, and, that found their way directly into what we're doing in East Africa. Um, so another very important aspect to how we uh, achieve sustainability and scale. To achieve the efficiency that sustainability requires and to scale quickly, Living Goods believes in exploiting existing assets wherever possible. Simply put, we look to any opportunity for meeting our goals without buying a truck, renting an office, or hiring a body ourselves. This strategy prevents the needless duplication of effort and expense that's fairly common in the social sector. In 2007, Living Goods um, created a joint venture with BRAC to implement Living Goods in Uganda. Have, have, for those many of you said you knew about microfinance. How many have heard of BRAC? Interesting. So BRAC is by some reports, the largest social service organization in the world. It has 100,000 employees. It and may be one of the world's most successful and efficient um, social service groups. It, is, it originally stood for Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee, and now that it is global, it has changed its acronym to Building Resources Across Communities. <laughs> 
you can find it at uh, BRAC.net. And it's typical of BRAC that their website is lousy, but their work is great. In, in bank, operating in Bangladesh since 1970s, BRAC was a pioneer in microfinance, one of the first two. Um, it serves over 6 million microcredit borrowers and operates its lending profitably. That's just Bangladesh. Um, it implements its lending through village organizations composed of usually 30 women with an average loan of $100 to $200. And they target the hardcore rural poor who are unserved by other microfinance institutions, very important. Um, and in Bangladesh, Bank, uh, BRAC uses these village groups as the conduits for delivering a whole range of social services, including health care, which are subsidized by the profits they make on microfinance. It's now in seven countries um, and initiated its effort to duplicate in, uh, in Africa a few years ago. And in just 18 months, BRAC opened 35 branches in Uganda alone in 22 districts. Uh, they created 2,000 of these village groups with 50,000 members, about 40,000 borrowers, and to date, the default rate is under 1%. In two years, they're gonna be the largest microfinance institution in this country, which has been practicing it since the mid-1990s. They are serious about scale. And how does our partnership work with these guys? Um, we recruit these health promoters from these existing lending groups. The members of the VO are essentially pre-screened for us by both local officials and by BRAC itself. Um, and then this group also, of course, provides sort of a natural customer base and uh, imprimatur in the community um, for the living goods agent. Um, we employ staff in BRAC's existing field offices who recruit, train, and support these uh, our community health promoters. Um, and then we use those existing field offices also as micro-warehouses. And last but not least, BRAC provides the working capital loan. It's very very synergistic relationship. So, Living Goods vision, however, is not limited to health. Perhaps the greatest value of our model it will be creating a sustainable distribution platform that can serve as the conduit for a wide range of products that benefit the poor. Over time, Living Goods will test market innovative products that help poor consumers save money on fuel, improve crop yields, power lights, cell phones, and access clean water. In this area, Living Goods will focus on simple products that help clients save money or make money, many of which can be literally paid for with the cash they generate. Let me give one example here, uh, which is one of my favorites, which of course I, I left out of this. Where did I put it in here? High efficiency cook stoves, great example. Here's the math. A poor, uh, poor Ugandan families usually sp can spend anywhere from 250 to as much as $5 a week on charcoal a high-efficiency stove that we can sell for $20 uses half the fuel of a traditional stove while generating the same or better heat. Thus, a rural home can pay for the better stove in 16 weeks just with the savings, so no net change in their cash flow. And then every week after that, they're saving a dollar and a quarter. That means that translates to a $60, effectively a $60 a year increase in income, or about 20%. Now, because most poor families don't have the $20 in a jar on a shelf, living goods will sell the stove on installment payment. And they can get the access to the working capital for that from BRAC. Similar math works for solar lanterns that replace kerosene. In addition to saving money, stoves, these stoves and lanterns cut indoor air pollution, which reliable sources estimate claims over a million lives a year. So these are really quadruple bottom line products. It's really, we're very excited about it. 
They save money for the client, they earn money for the health promoter, they improve health outcomes, and they also lower the carbon output. In fact, we have a supplier, this is great, you'll love this, we have a supplier in Uganda who is selling carbon credits to companies in Europe to lower the cost of the stoves that, we, that our customers buy in Uganda. Small-scale agriculture is another great opportunity. Um, and there's a lot of these kind of products, and, and very few of them, um, they've been around for 10 or 15 years, but very few of them have cracked the code on distribution, uh, which is, of course, what we hope to do for them. So this is all very well and good for uh, Uganda. But after all my sermonizing about scale, you may ask, how are we going to do, how do we take this global? Wide replication is the fundamental long-term goal for living goods. It took microfinance 35 years to get to that scale. We'd like to do it and shorten that to about 10 years. Um, we plan to use, as you see here, multiple modes of replication. These forms of expansion range from uh, highly engaged, as you see on the top here, to minimal. Uh, on, the highly, on the most engaged end, you may see living goods doing fully owned and operated divisions in other countries. Um, the next level is what we're really doing with BRAC, i.e. operating sort of master franchise joint venture relationships, uh, hopefully over multiple countries. And we've heard recently from BRAC that they like to take this partnership to their to their other countries. Farther down the scale is what you would think of sort of technical assistance, where we would get involved with organizations for one to two years on a consulting contract that they, they would operate under their own brand and then become financially independent. Um, at the level of least engagement lies the replication strategy, however, with the greatest potential. That's imitation. As with microfinance, we expect that demonstrating a fully self-funding system for defeating the diseases of poverty Will attract many imitators. And while imitation sounds like a, uh, a strategy requiring fairly little effort, uh, we're not taking this uh, with a laissez-faire attitude. In fact, we're implementing a fairly aggressive strategy to encourage imitation by open sourcing our intellectual capital and basically encouraging people to knock us off. The good news on this front, um, that's where the private sector piece probably goes sideways a little bit, um, is that this, at this very early stage, we already have a waiting list of organizations who want to partner with us um, uh, to apply this mother, model in other countries. So um, what do we need to bring this uh, to fruition? Um, we need a couple of things. One is we need the right partners in the field. BRAC is an exceptional organization, and we need to find more like them. They're in seven countries, and our ambition goes considerably beyond that. They have, these organizations have to have real leverageable assets on the ground and, and, importantly, really good management, which is hard to find in the social space. But we're not limited ourselves to social organizations. We need talented staff. We're actually hiring for an associate director right now, if anybody would like to make a recommendation. Uh, we are increasingly looking for committed corporate partners. Um, uh, in particular, we're, we're in discussions and relationships in package, with packaged goods businesses like Procter & Gamble, pharmaceutical companies, healthcare businesses, and, of course, direct sellers. I spent my afternoon in discussions with Mary Kay and Beauty Control. Uh, and last, of course, um, money doesn't hurt, but not forever. Um, we just need the risk capital to get started um, in each country. Um, uh, my wife and I have funded the U.S. cost today, so the money we raise in the U.S., 100% of it goes uh, overseas. And we've been largely successful, as you can imagine, finding like-minded entrepreneurs who sort of get the business model of what we're doing. So, closing, if living goods sustainable approach succeeds in Uganda, 
It can be replicated in many places, in many forms, and depending on the local circumstances, that can mean as a self-supporting NGO, um, at, even as a contractor to governments, or as a commercial enterprise. Under any of these scenarios, the model can deliver exceptional public health returns on minimal investment. A one-time infusion of about $5 million, we believe, is what it will take to get a country to a fully sustainable system that can serve, as we've pointed out before, 20 to 50% of the population, can reduce the incidence of deadly diseases, enhance labor productivity, gainfully employ thousands of health entrepreneurs, safeguard pregnant mothers and newborns, and save untold lives. And like others, unlike other social programs, the required donor commitment is for a finite period, after which living goods should be 100% self-sustaining on a country basis. Of course, I have to say, the living goods model is not designed to cure and to treat every health problem at the end of every dusty track, um, nor can it um, uh, work in every country. But it can meaningfully improve health outcomes in many underserved communities and thus free the limited public resources to serve the hardest to reach that can't be done on a sustainable basis. Building a uh, sustainable, replicable business model will be just one measure of our success. The far greater success, of course, will be counted in the many diseases prevented, the many children saved, the many healthy, productive years families will enjoy by having affordable medicine within reach. Thank you very much. Can we do that? How are we doing on time? Oh, we're fine. Yeah. Um, we have about uh, 15, 20 minutes for questions, and um, there are two questions that were submitted by ah. students. Oh, okay. To start with, All right. and then I'll let you Good. take it. Well, I'm going to do a few questions, and I'm going to show you two minutes pictures that go along with this. Let's see here. Highland Park High School, dear, uh, Dan Charles, 10th grade. Are you here? Hi, Dan. Uh, what, is, uh, what are the greatest barriers preventing the victims from helping themselves? If there are no barriers, why isn't there any action against poverty on the micro level? So we talked about some of the uh, barriers before, which is that if you're, a, if you're someone suffering from malaria, for example, um, uh, you, you may go to try to get to a public clinic, uh, but that could be 10 kilometers away. Uh, and, oh, excuse me. Thank you, honey. Uh, that could be 10 kilometers or even 5 kilometers away and your mother may or may not have the time to get you there. She might have to spend $2 or in, uh, in public transportation to get there and then she'll probably wait online to get diagnosed and then she'll have to wait another line to get a prescription and uh, there's a pretty good chance when she gets to the head of the second line that the drugs won't be there. So that's, that's a fairly significant barrier and that happens, doesn't happen all the time but happens frequently enough that many of the women just stop going. Uh, that's what we saw in uh, this program I was involved in in, in Kenya. Um, to answer your second question, a, a variation on your second question, the interesting thing is that the women in these communities, the health promoters who we engage, are very motivated to help their communities. I was telling uh, some people earlier, we, uh, my last trip we went around a room of about 20 health promoters and asked them why were they doing this. And I would have thought that most of them would have started with the economic reason. I mean, these people are poor, right? They need, you know, they need cash income. Not one of them cited that as their primary rationale. Um, and uh, I'll mention one woman in particular. Um, she was a, the face you saw on that last slide. Her name is um, uh, Margaret. Uh, and this will give you an insight why. Margaret 
is about 50. The first thing he knows about she's old. You don't see many old people in Uganda. Uh, and she, uh, uh, she, has, she had 16 children. She's a perfect image of both the problem and, and, and the promise here. She lost six of them. But she now has four adopted children. Um, from other people in her family who, who have uh, suffered from uh, AIDS or malaria. And her reason for doing this is she wants to, and, and by the way, she's HIV positive. Incredible energy. And her motivation for doing this, she said, is she wants to prevent, help other women in her community avoid the problems that she's had in her life by having such a large family and having to deal with AIDS. And that, that is a version of that is what we hear over and over and over again. Let me get a second question here. Trey Deach, Highland Park High School. Trey, are you here? Hi there. What do the organizations, especially the larger ones that currently lead treatment and prevention efforts, think of what you are doing, and do they cooperate and adapt? That's a, that's a great question, uh, Trey. Um, uh, so the, most, the largest organization in Uganda would be the Ministry of Health, um, and um, the commissioner for for community health is actually on the advisory board for Living Goods, and we have a very close relationship with the ministry. It's very important for us to have that system of referral, so when it gets to the point when we have diseases that our health promoters can't handle, we can efficiently transfer them to a public health center. Um, and uh, this last trip was very successful because, uh, as you may have heard me mention, the ministry has agreed to help to use us as a conduit for distributing free medicines. Um, so. Uh, so far, so good, I would say, on that front. Other questions? I was just so, say your name, too, if you don't mind. My name's John Scott. I live yeah. in Fort Worth. Yeah. Oh, I, was, I'm, I live in Fort Worth. My name's Joan Scott. Huh. And um, I was just recently in the San Francisco Bay Area, right near where you live. I'm from that area. Yeah. And I heard John Ko speak, and he is the author of Innovation Nation. And there's a colon, and there's a whole lot of other stuff in the title. But anyway, he talked about innovation around the world. He, uh, his clients are in Singapore and Finland, and he talked about the United States. And he basically said, in America, there is no innovation going on. And I just wanted to applaud you because I'm here to tell you, listening to this, that that's not totally true. <laughs> and I, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. I beg to differ, though. We're just, you know, we're copying Avon and Mary Kay, just doing it with different things. Sir. Thank you, Jim Harrell. Um, you seem like an entrepreneurial sort of a guy. We are having trouble on the funder side finding a way to communicate globally and things that are going on, how we can find opportunities to fund things. How can we put together, so to speak, as we have as parents a Yahoo group, the most simple uh, thing in the world here, yeah. on a global scale, so that we can learn from things like that you're doing and those that are funders that see opportunities can share with each other. No one's doing that. I mean, there's no way to find out globally what's going on. Maybe you should uh, create one. <laughs> You've hit a nerve with me on this topic. Um, uh, as my wife has probably heard me rant about before. There's not nearly enough communication and collaboration in the donor community. Um, and I'm, a, I'm both a donor and a social entrepreneur, so I can, I can, I can chastise myself on this. Um, you know, donors all want to do their own thing, and they don't talk to each other. There's less collaboration, I'd argue, in, in, the, in, in the social sector than there is in the private sector. How many mergers and acquisitions do you hear about in the social sector? Doesn't happen. Um, I, I serve on the board of one organization in San Francisco that does outdoor programs for kids, and there are two other organizations within 50 miles that do the exact same thing. 
And I've been trying for years to get them to, you know, they've got three boards of directors, three development people, three CEOs, you know, and they're all under $2 million a year. And I, at one point I said, you know, maybe it's the language. We, we shouldn't call it mergers and acquisition. We'll call it marriage and adoption. <laughs> it's not working. But I, 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 I couldn't agree more with, with the question. I'm not sure of the solution, um, but I do think that donors need to work together more. Um, I think they need to think about writing much bigger checks to much fewer organizations. Um, and, uh, you know, a simple one, you know, I sat in, again, with my donor hat on. I also serve on a, tr- I'm a trustee of a foundation. Um, I sat in on a presentation by the Gates Foundation. Now, they don't do everything right, but they do a lot of things right. And uh, they shared their due diligence on two organizations that were phenomenal. And I said, you know, why don't I just co-invest? Now, it seems silly to co-invest with Gates, right? Um, but let me, you know, I, I, we're talking about scale. The amount of money that Gates may be spending $3 billion a year now, it's still a drop in the bucket. It really is a drop in the bucket. So in co-investing with a smart funder like Gates or a Rockefeller, find a, a large foundation who you think is going to be expert in the area that you're interested in and, and, and call them. Get them to share their intelligence and see if there are things you'd like to go in on. That's what I do. I was just wondering mm. really quickly if you could uh, mm. just tell us how to access um, the, uh, the open source um, format you were talking about with your, with your company, your organization. Send me an email. <laughs> we're gonna, at some point, we're going to put a lot of it actually online, but one of the things we need to do is, uh, that we're raising money for right now is documenting and sort of shrink-wrapping all of our process capital. Um, but the, the open sourcing, the, like the documents and the methodology and so forth, is part of it, but really you need access to the people. And we're actually also, um, part of that effort is, is we're going to create sort of like a McKinsey-style international replication team. Um, uh, who are going to become, uh, you know, the, the subject matter experts and will help other organizations copy what we're doing. United States. And yes. the nurse practitioners now that we have here and the growth of nurse practitioners and how they resemble your health promoters in other nations because they're, they're able to dispense medicines now. And yes. there's a lot of preventable diseases that Americans suffer from. Yes. Where they need more education, too. Y- yes. And it just begs the question, could we also replicate an Avon model to try to stem congestive heart failure and high cholesterol and those types of ailments to the millions of uninsured people here? Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think so. You know, one issue you encounter country by country, and the U.S. would be one of the more complicated ones, is where's the bright line between ethical and non-ethical prescription, non-prescription drugs? We, this is all non-prescription. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, uh, I think there's, I think there is potential for this sort of model, model here. Absolutely. Do you want to do it? Is it so, are you volunteering? <laughs> you said that fifty percent of your sales mm. soap. If you had to divide the sales between the four major categories: treatment, prevention, consumer goods, yes. and money makers, yes. where would the numbers fall? Right now, um, a lot of it actually is in some of the consumer products, and our challenge, um, you know, we're still very early. Um, and so the whole idea here is we have a set of dials on pricing, promotion, incentives, and so forth that the system is created to have, and we need to start turning them to, to, get the, to optimize the outcomes. So in dollar terms, you know, a, high, a lot of it is in the bottom left corner. In unit terms, you know, we sell a lot of vitamins, so they're small units. Um, but a lot of health impact. 
Um, so we think about we really first think about impacts and secondarily about dollars or shillings or as the case may be. The law we need to set and we're in the process of setting specific objectives for each of the health items that are consistent with the health outcome we want to have in a community. I mean, bed nets is an example. You know, uh, in three years we want to have a seventy percent of women and children under five sleeping under a long-lasting insecticide-treated net um, in all the places we operate. So that's not a perfect answer. It's, it's more about where we're headed than where we are today. Thank you for remembering. Kay Maxwell. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, she asked my first question. Thank you very much. The second question I have is, in a poor country where you've got poor people selling to poor people, where did the buyers get their money to buy these products? Um, a fair, a fair question. I don't get that asked enough, actually. <laughs> so, uh, uh, there's, there's a very long answer. I'll try to give you the short answer. The short answer is that, is that is inherent to our original premise, which is that the cost of these interventions is very minimal. And I'll give one example. Um, uh, one of the biggest killers you saw there is, is diarrheal disease, you know, um, and the children don't die of the bug. They die of dehydration. And dehydration can be treated with something called ORS, which is oral rehydration salts, which is basically a small packet of sh sugar and salt. And that costs, you can sell those for 25 cents, 30 cents. Um, and so even in communities where people are living on a dollar a day, a 25% cent packet that can save your child's life is accessible. Um, it, 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 when we model this out, actually, to make sustainability, um, we only have to sell about $2 a year per capita to achieve sustainability. It doesn't achieve all the health impacts. Um, uh, and so even in countries where there's a dollar a day incomes, $2 a year um, is a pretty achievable uh, uh, target. Um, a, a, a longer part of the answer is there's some things which are out of reach, and the model is designed to be able to allow us to, to access subsidized medicines and, and use this as a channel for those. The malaria drug is a good example. My name is Frank. I'm uh, curious about where products are manufactured and assembled, and if that is in countries outside of where you're distributing, how do you deal with the port authorities in these countries and the corruption around places like that and uh, yeah. those kinds of issues? So I'm not as well-versed on that as I should be. Um, most of the health products we sell are very basic, and we buy most of them currently from you know, the, you know the, the, the small dollar items. Put aside the uh, uh, cook stoves and pumps and that sort of stuff for the moment. And those are easily accessible in country from local, many of them locally manufactured. Um, and in other cases, um, we can buy it from a direct importer. So we don't have to deal with customs and duties and, and uh, port issues. At some, at some point, though, we will face more of that as we try to lower our costs by becoming the direct importer. Um, ourself. We are having a little bit of a challenge in one, on one product right now, which is solar lanterns, which we've got to figure out how to get in the country without paying a ridiculous duty on it um, that would put them out of reach. Um, so, but so far, not an obstacle. Hi, I'm Tori Manos with the Wilson Foundation, and we fund mm. healthcare initiatives in rural South Africa. One of the issues that we um, have to face when providing health services in a rural community is the cultural barriers with people who would prefer to go to a village healer before seeking any other kind of traditional medicine. So I'm wondering if you've encountered those sorts of barriers and um, how you've overcome them in trying to sell these products to the community. So in, in uh, Uganda, I haven't seen much of it yet, but it is, I did see it in Kenya. And um, uh, my, my sort of somewhat short answer to that is, is that you don't put down the, the local healer. <laughs> 
you know, you have to peacefully coexist. Um, and you have to get people um, to, to see that the importance is really of doing both. Um, and if you try to push too hard against it, it, it doesn't work. That's my experience. Um, if you haven't read Paul Farmer's book, I would, I would read that. There's a lot of great anecdotes about that exact sort of uh, approach. One more, and then we'll show our, give you some words of music. Anybody else? How, how do you define the word sustainability? Because I hear that. Ah. Good point. Not donor dependent, I guess, would be the short version. Um, so we may access other forms of capital in the private markets, but my crisp de definition is not donor dependent. So what, once it gets up and running? Once it gets up and running, you, you can finance it through, the, through local or international capital markets. You know, so, you know, different, that, that could mean a break-even social enterprise or a low, low social return enterprise like some microfinance institutions or fully commercial. The microfinance world has all different flavors. Thanks for coming. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.